two here on BL. Joining me now uh, for a bit of a hit of medieval history is our medieval historian, Carol Cusack. How are you, Carol? Very well, Angela. How are you? Good, good. Now, last time we spoke, we uh, looked at the life and times of Charlemagne. And t- today we're going to look at uh, the child of that famous dad, Louis the Pious. Indeed. Did he suffer for, from having a very famous father? I think he partly suffered and he partly learned. So, naturally, he seems like a pretty feeble case in some ways compared to his father. Certainly didn't conquer any territories, didn't uh, manipulate any popes, wasn't a particularly impressive ruler, was deposed twice, had a lot of difficulty controlling his children, which old Charlemagne didn't have any difficulty controlling his children. But Louis also learned lessons of how to govern from his father. Well, if he was deposed twice, wasn't he Louis the loser then? Well, interestingly, almost at that point in medieval history, to call someone the pious was probably to indicate that they weren't all that good at governing, much more interested in religion than in piety. But the interesting thing is that also it opens up for us the question of what was piety. And what was it in those terms? Well, let me tell you that one of the first things that Louis did when in 814 he, as sole surviving legitimate son of Charlemagne, took over his father's massive empire, one of the first things he did was round up all the possible relatives who might have had a claim to the throne. The most important one was called Bernard, and he was a cousin. Uh, Louis had him blinded by having his eyes gouged out. And we we might have talked at one point about how medieval people were suspicious of deformity. Kings had to be kind of perfect specimens, you know. So once poor old Bernard lost his eyes, there was absolutely no way he was going to be a a rival for Louis' throne. This is a bit tough, isn't it? Well, I think it was logical. I think he had seen his dad massacre the 6,000 Saxons in one day and, you know, realised that it, it had certain benefits. All the other cousins he didn't treat quite so badly. You wouldn't want to go to a family lunch with them, though, would you? Well... This was the modus <laughs> operandi. <laughs> Anywhere between sh- between Clovis in 500 and Hugh Capet in 1000, 500 years, I wouldn't have wanted to go to dinner with any of them. <laughs> they were very dangerous. All of Louis's other cousins, he um, forcibly tonsured and stuffed into monasteries because once they'd taken holy orders, they couldn't challenge him for the throne either. But you see, he was being foolish. He thought the only people that were going to be dangerous were contemporaries, people who were grown men. He forgot about the rivalries and the jealousies of sons for a father. Oh, really? So he had a bit of trouble in that, uh, in that regard? Well, he had two wives. Medieval monarchs often did. Uh, not simultaneously, obviously, because the church would disapprove. Sometimes they did have simultaneous wives. The church usually sent some angry cleric around to make a fuss. But we know about wicked stepmothers. You know, they're one of the stereotypes of women. They turn up in fairy tales. They're, they're generally unpleasant. And everybody's made to feel so sorry for the children who have the stepmother. The story of Louis the Pious's later years is the story horrendous children who persecute a stepmother. How did they persecute the stepmother? Well, her name was Judith, and she was a wealth. Um, That probably doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but some people will know that there was a quarrel in the northern Italian states a couple of centuries later between parties called the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. It started in Germany, and the Guelphs originally were Welfs, her family. They were Bavarians. This is a sort of regional thing. Judith Guelph. Yeah, Judith Bavarian (laughs) and she was rather beautiful and she married old Louis when Louis was in middle age in fact um, 
considerable middle age, really, about 44. She was a very young woman. She was beautiful. Uh, her stepchildren, the famous two, son, two of the famous sons of Louis the Pious, Lothar and Louis the German, didn't like her very much, naturally, because they feared she'd have more children, she'd upset the succession, and indeed she did. She had a, a son called Charles the Bald. Charles the Bald? Well, no doubt he was as a baby. And no doubt he was as an adult. Um, Lu Judith was fiercely devoted to Charles the Bald, and naturally he was the third son, so it might have been expected that either he'd get bumped off, or he'd get no property, or somehow he'd be passed over, generally. Now, Judith is often treated very badly in history books. For example, I know that you have been uh, looking at the Duc de Castries, Kings and Queens of France, like I do. He treats her like she's just an absolutely tyrannical bitch who's just appalling. And was she? No. You see, the presence of a woman in a court was quite dangerous. There's a fabulous book by a woman called Pauline Stafford, which is called Queens, Concubines and Dowagers. And it says, when you're young and you're beautiful and you attract an old king, he'll do anything for you and you're in a good position. But if you attract an old king, he'll die and you won't be that old and you won't have a protector anymore and you will have made enemies because the old king will have given you things and loved you and indulged you. And then when he dies, you are really stuffed. You'll probably get thrown into a convent or you'll be forced to marry someone who's vastly below your rank just to protect you or you may get killed. You know, we've talked about a few queens who came to sticky ends earlier on. So Judith was very bold, I think, very um, courageous considering her position. She was a young woman married to an ageing man. She wanted to safeguard things for her son and she had two big ugly elder stepsons who didn't really want this to happen. Now, one of our listeners is rung in, Carol James, and he says that Queen Victoria was also a Guelph. Um, it's interesting. There have been some al allegations that the uh, English royal family, certainly the Windsors, the, the um, Saxe-Coburg-Goethes, as they were called, can trace their ancestry to a couple of very early medieval kings, not only uh, some of the continental ones, but also Ina of Wessex, who's an 8th century king from England, is supposedly an ancestor of Queen Victoria as well. So yes, some people, you know, purport to have these family trees worked out. I'm not totally sure about the validity. And so did Judith um, survive? She did. And one of the most brilliant things is, what can stepsons who hate their stepmother do to them? Just think about the medieval church. The best thing is to accuse her of sin of some kind. The first attempt was in 832, um, was it 829, and they accused her of adultery. You know, her husband was old, she probably had some handsome young thing around as a lover. Uh, she was banished to a convent and there was an in investigation into her conduct and eventually Louis, who did absolutely love her, had her released and declared innocent. But the second time, in 832, was really more serious. That time, she was accused of witchcraft. Witchcraft in the royal family. And did they get anything on her? No, but it's interesting. A lot of our most famous witchcraft trials in the Middle Ages, the most obvious one is the one of Alice Keitler from Kilkenny. And lots of people, I'm sure, know about her or have even visited Kilkenny and seen her in. Stepchildren who were jealous of stepmothers frequently explained the fact that their fathers loved these women by saying she enchanted him. She's a witch. So what happened to her when she was accused of witchcraft? Well, actually, she was carried off to a convent yet again and asked to repeat, asked to repent and asked to reveal her crimes and so on. Louis, who by this stage was 
54, but ailing and not a terribly sort of together 54, as you can imagine, was also carried off to a monastery and he was told to repent of his monstrous love for this witch, etc, etc. And his son, the eldest son, Lothar, became the de facto ruler. The point was it didn't last very long because within two years everybody was just so angry with Lothar and so worried about the disorder in the kingdom that they really wanted Louis back, even if he wasn't all that good. He was sort of a, an image of stability, and he was, after all, the crowned emperor. And so his retainers, you know, I've talked about how certain knights swore oaths of fealty. The people who really were supposed to be devoted to his interests rescued him in a nighttime raid from the monastery and reinstated him. And, and what happened to Lothar in that? Well, Lothar couldn't really be gotten rid of because he was the legitimate eldest son and he he was a clever man. He just was put off achieving his inheritance for another four or five years until Louis actually died. But what's really interesting is the retainers said, hey, we'll put you back on the throne. And Louis said, great, we have to get my wife. And they said, no, forget it. The witch. Yeah, they said, forget it. She's dead meat. She has been accused of witchcraft. Even if she's not really a witch, how will you ever prove it? People will always whisper and murmur that that's what she was, you know. And Louis said, no, no, I have to have my wife. And the interesting thing was once he was um, reinstated, he got her out of the convent and he had to put her on trial for witchcraft. And she had to be acquitted because, you see, if he didn't actually try the allegations, people would just believe that, you know, he was enslaved by a witch. And so he, he got her publicly acquitted and then he sent all her judges off to monasteries as well, banished them for daring to have uh, entertained such an allegation. Was this the first time something like this had happened? It's interesting. It was more common in the High Middle Ages. I mean, this is only around 834, so only the ninth century. In the High Middle Ages, it was very common to accuse a woman of witchcraft if you wanted to get rid of her, if you feared her influence. And you see, the church in particular was very ambivalent about women and their influence because Eve had tempted Adam, you see. It was her persuasion that brought about sin. Women, even wives, even respectably married women, could persuade their husbands. They could uh, be unwitting sources of evil. What, were there many people practicing witchcraft at that time? It's very difficult to know. M medieval historians, some of them believe there were, like real witches in, in our modern sense of the term. Others believe that there were women who were wise in, for example, herbal lore and those sorts of things, who were accused of witchcraft un unwisely, who were actually sort of really proto-doctors and who were good people. And other historians like Norman Cohen, who's a historian I admire quite a lot, believe that there actually weren't any witches at all. It was all sort of fevered imaginations of churchmen. Tell us about the process that went through if you were on trial for being a witch. Well, it varied. There were a number of processes. After the early 13th century, there was an inquisition, and they looked into both heresy and witchcraft, and they had formal modes of operation. Before that, what tended to happen was a kind of hysteria gripped people whenever they heard of accusations of witchcraft. And what happened was that the people were usually brought either to trial by ordeal, which is things like carrying lumps of burning iron, and then if the wound heals over, you're okay, and if it festers and becomes poisoned, you're not. Or being thrown into the pond, which is the traditional one. If you float, you are a witch. If you sink, you're innocent, but you've died anyway. So <laughs> How many floated? <laughs> How many did? Well, 
actually, it's not that difficult for a woman to float if she's tossed into water in, in voluminous skirts, you know, they, they, they keep you up. It depended on how long they counted, of course, you know. Was Judith a floater? Well, Judith was never tried in that way because she was, after all, Empress of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, she would have had a bit of bad feeling to her stepson, wouldn't she, after all this? Oh, she did what she could to subvert their interests, and it's very interesting. We've talked about inheritance amongst the early French kings and how the tradition was that you broke your kingdom up and you gave a piece to each son, but then mostly kings were very sensible and either some of their sons died or they, they bumped them off so they only had one ear to leave the, the whole chunk to. In fact, our modern divisions of France and Germany and the disputed region in between really date from the sons of Louis because um, Louis the German naturally got Germany, the bit that is Germany. Charles the Bald, Judith's son, whom she campaigned for tirelessly and whom I'm, I'm glad to report he was suitably grateful to her, got what is France. Now, did he grow any hair well, at any stage? He was always known as the Bald. I imagine he was a thinning young man even. A, a thinning young ruler of France. And what was the other son? The other son was Lothar and he got what is Lotharingia, which is Lorraine nowadays. And so we have the Alsace and Lorraine, which is that disputed region in between France and Germany that, you know, for example, the Germans annexed before World War One and annexed again before World War Two, and, you know, was the big sort of battle-soaked region between it, the two. It seems there's a bit of disproportion there in the land masses. I think that the land masses, when they were distributed, were more proportional. The way that those regions have been d defined throughout history has whittled away the middle section, whereas, in fact, I think Lothar received uh, quite a, you know, an equal inheritance when, when it was all divvied up. Now, next time we speak, Carol, we're going to look at the sons of, uh, of Louis the Pious? Well, I'm just thinking about this. I actually wouldn't mind having an excursus onto the Vikings, if viewers like it, because one of the reasons that it was so possible to prosecute Judith was that Louis's reign was a reign of great terror for France. The Viking invasions had commenced in um, 793, and firstly, that had only been England but then they made it to the continent. And people truly believed these savage people from the north were agents of destruction, that God was punishing them, that there was this strong feeling about heresy and witchcraft and danger. And of course, one of the things that Louis the Pious, you know, he was pious, actually tried to do was convert the Vikings of Denmark though he failed abjectly. Okay. So I thought we might talk about them for a the bit. The Vikings, indeed. Now, we've just had a call from another listener, Carol, uh, Suzanne. Suzanne says, perhaps Judith deserved her fate since she was trying to rob the eldest of his birthright. Very well, Angela. Representing the non-driver's lobby. Uh, I yes. never have. I probably never will. Now, transport's actually going to come into our, um, our subject today, the Vikings. The men who travelled by ship. Exclusively? Pretty much, occasionally by foot. They were actually remarkable people. When they got onto rivers and their ships couldn't negotiate the rivers anymore, they got them out of the ships and pushed them along on sort of platforms with rollers beside them. <laughs> they Thanks. just loved them so much. They did. They had to sleep with them, like bikers and their bikes. How know? far did the Vikings go in their boats? Everywhere. It's absolutely amazing to consider. When you think, you know, when they turned up in Europe in 793, sacking the monastery of Lindisfarne in, in North England, no one really had been the least bit interested about who or what was up there in the Scandinavian peninsula. It was off the map, you know, outside the real Europe. And then in the space of 50 years, maybe, taking you to about 840, the year our old friend Louis the Pious from our last meeting dies, 
the Vikings had gone to North Africa, where they were bringing back slaves that were known as Blarmen, the black men that they sold in the slave markets of Europe. They'd been to Constantinople, where they'd got employment as mercenaries. They'd founded the big trading towns in Russia, Novgorod and Kiev are both Viking towns. They'd almost completely conquered Ireland. Um, a Norwegian chieftain called Turgeis, who was incredibly efficient, went and conquered Ireland very, but very quickly. what impact did they have? Lasting impact did they have, the Vikings? Well, lasting impact, that's a good question. They got absorbed. Europe was an amazingly resilient society and ultimately it could make room for anybody, provided, of course, they behaved themselves, became Christians and settled down. And so we have situations like the Normans in the north of France, where finally Duke Hrolf, known as Rollo of Normandy in his French sources, was given a grant of land and told, you know, you make your men stay, marry local girls, get baptised and we don't mind, you can stay. But the time, the real impact was just the terror, the absolute shock because the Europeans had become kind of complacent. Everybody was a Christian, a friend, traded, everything was safe and all of a sudden these people came along and they just violated every known law and standard of decency because they, they looted, didn't belong. They looted and pillaged. And raped. And, and raped. sacked and burned. Well, now, why did they do this? Why This was just their way, was it? No, that's an interesting question. You see, when they turn up in 793, no, no Scandinavian had ever been sort of sighted before, you know, first sighting of a Scandinavian in Europe. Um, so something must have changed. And historians have a lot of conflicts, a lot of questioning about why it was that suddenly these guys started bursting out of Norway, Sweden and Denmark every year in their boats to raid. There are a combination of factors that are usually invoked. One is a possible sharp rise in population which means that there's no longer resources to feed and cope with them all at home. The second is the growth of the inheritance idea of primogeniture. If an estate goes to the eldest son, well, what do the rest of the sons do? And that was a real problem medieval Europe had as well, mercenary knights running around everywhere because there was no estate for them. The third suggestion that's made often about the Vikings is that there was some kind of climatic change which made agricultural and pastoral life problematic. And a final suggestion is that they just couldn't believe when knowledge finally came to them that Europe was sitting there, this immensely rich society, particularly so many places belonging to the church, of course, the monasteries, the convents and the cathedrals, stuffed with treasure and totally unguarded. Now, what religion were the Vikings? Well, they were of their own religion. What's usually the known Viking as religion. <laughs> the Viking religion, usually known as Germanic paganism. It was a polytheism of European kind, related uh, in in a historical sense to that of classical Greece and Rome, but with their own specific gods: Odin, the one-eyed king of the gods; Thor, his great son with the hammer who was the god of lightning and thunder, Frey and Freya, the goddesses of goddess and god of fertility and agricultural prosperity. Um, they were pagans, you see. And in Europe, by the year 800, remember Charlemagne getting crowned in Holy Roman Emperor in 800, almost everybody's been converted, whether willingly or forcibly. Except the Vikings. Except the Vikings and some people in Eastern Europe in what is now Czechoslovakia and Poland, where they just hadn't pushed that far yet. So Europe, you know, Western Europe is just this little solid Christian block 
and so they're quite shocked to encounter these pagan people. Did they try and convert the Vikings? Did they what? Well, <laughs> remember from last talk, Robert the Pi- uh, Louis the Pious, sorry. Mm. Um, there is a Robert the Pious, he comes later. Louis the Pious, well, he was pious. He tried to convert the Danes when a Danish king called Harold Clack turned up in his... Harold Clack? Yep. Harold Clack. <laughs> he turned up in 824 because he was having problems um, fighting with another small king. You know, we think of Norway and Sweden and Denmark as being three countries, but in the Middle Ages, in fact, there wasn't a single ruler for each country. There were more like little tribal confederations and there were quite a number of kings. And Harold Clack was only one of them. And his en- enemy was called Godric, and he had a couple of sons who were pretty devastatingly uh, good enemies as well. And so he came down to Louis the Pious because he thought Louis might be able to help, you know, rich, powerful, an emperor, maybe, yeah. And Louis said, you shall get baptised or I will not help you. And he said, oh, look, I'll do anything, you know, you can trickle some water on my head if you like. But he clearly didn't have any lessons in religion. And when he went back to Denmark to try to recover his um, uh, kingdom, Louis sent with him a wonderful man, the great missionary of the Middle Ages, in my opinion, Ansgar of Corby, who went on from 826 to 865, 39 years, to be missionary to the Danes, the Swedes and the Norwegians, a man who worked tirelessly, had considerable imagination and resourcefulness and made one convert. (laughs) Ansgar the loser. Well, he had had recourse at the end of his life to spiritual comforts since there was no comfort on earth. Yes, Ansgar, the non-converter. Now, what techniques was Ansgar using and why didn't he, you know, reassess them? Well, because one of the problems was that conversion worked best if you could back it up with force. When Ansgar left Louis' court and went to live in Denmark... What he did was he took himself out into wild territory. You know, it was like those missionaries in films like Black Robe living amongst the the American Indians, away from the sites of power of their own culture. And so really, Louis the Pious couldn't help him much when he was up there. And then Louis died and Louis' sons, Lothar and Charles, helped him a little bit. But they couldn't really extend their influence. And so what he did mostly was preach sermons that nobody listened to much. Um, He did a lot of suckering of captives. Eh? What's um, that mean? S-U-C-C-O-U-R, Angela. Not Suckering. S- yes, not sucker, as <laughs> in an all-day sucker, which was that there were lots of Christians who lived amongst the Vikings. They were all slaves that the Vikings had captured and dragged home, concubines. And None servants. of them listened to him? Well, they did. They were terribly happy. But he didn't have to convert them, you see, because they were already Christians and they just wanted someone to hear their confession and look after them. And the one person he did convert was a fellow called Herigar, who was the town prefect of a town called Birka, one of the big trading centres in Sweden. And he was apparently quite sincerely convinced of Christianity. He must have been, because all his fellow townsfolk said he was an idiot and what was he doing forsaking the old gods and this new god was no good because everybody knew that the priests were a bit strange. Now, Ansgar, what happened in the end? Did he just pack up his pulpit and go home? He got made Archbishop of Hamburg and Bremen, which was a kind of reward by the... the Vatican and it took him back onto the mainland because Hamburg Bremen's in Schleswig-Holstein in the north of Germany and eventually he died of dysentery. He was an all-round loser, wasn't he, really? (laughs) Now, uh, with the Vikings, when the Vikings used to go out to rape, loot and pillage, 
Did uh, did women go with them too, or was it an all-male crew? Generally, it was an all-male thing. Interestingly, the women in Viking-era Scandinavia had quite a lot of rights and powers. They frequently acted as the managers of their family estates in the absence of their husbands and their fathers and brothers. But interestingly, we don't know very much about her, but there was one female Viking leader who actually led a ship full of raiders, and she was known as the Red Girl, and um, presumably because she had red hair, and she raided in, um, in and around the coasts of Ireland, and there are a couple of mentions of her, but it's quite clear no one captured her or ever had a chance to really converse with her, so that we don't know what her name was or you know, how she came to be a Viking leader. Now, when they used to take on the monasteries, they'd take all the riches and go home to Scandinavia with them. Is that what happened? That was how it happened initially. Vikings used to raid every year and they'd stack up the ships and go home. Oh, look, it's December. Here come the Vikings. Yes, it was a little bit like that. In fact, it was generally January. And in fact, the Feast of Epiphany, 6th of January, was one of the really bad dates. You could tell that they were going to be coming at any particular point. Um, but the interesting thing was that after about 30 years, in around the 820s, the Vikings stopped going home, a lot of them. They used to just winter in England and France because it was much nicer territory than it was in, in, um, in uh, Scandinavia. And they could just seize land and start having their own estates in England and all that sort of stuff. So did the countries eventually work it out? And they think, oh, here's the 6th of January, it's time for them to come again. Is that what happened and they'd wait for them? Well, eventually what happened was that they were just so brazen. They kept exhorting payments out of the, the kings of Europe just to, to go away, you know. OK, here we are. We're not going to sack anything unless you pay us £11,000. If you pay us £11,000, well, we'll leave you alone. But how did they do this? They wouldn't have had the same currencies. Was it in gold? No, it's just in any kind of valuables. But the thing that was incredible was that people just were terrified of these people. Um, Ragnar Lothbrokker, who is the most famous Viking of the 9th century, and anyone who's seen the great Kirk Douglas Ernest Borgnine film The Vikings <laughs> will know quite a bit about Ragnar Lothbrokker because the film's about his sons. Um, he sailed up the Seine with one ship 200 miles in from the coast. Armies gathered on both sides that were going to fight him. He went for the smaller force, defeated it and proceeded to kill every one of the prisoners, so much so that he made the other army so nervous that they ran away. Then he went to the royal court, demanded 7,000 pounds of silver in reward and then he sailed leisurely 200 miles to the coast home without anybody trying to stop him. Why didn't they stop him? Because they were petrified of him. They thought they were demons. They thought they had the power of Satan, you know, these people were just amazing. So why did they eventually stop doing this? They got civilised and they got converted to Christianity and they quietened down and they married local girls and <laughs> turned out to be quite respectable. Who civilised them and who did convert them in the end after Ansgar's disastrous attempts? Uh, lots of bishops actually had a go at converting them, but what happened eventually was these two wonderful saints, both called Olaf around about the year 1000. One's Olaf Tryggvason. Actually, he's not properly a saint. He was never canonised, but a lot of Scandinavians thought he was. And the other was Olaf Haraldson, who is known as Saint Olaf. And they just got Christianity when they were living in England. Actually, Olaf Tryggvason in England, Olaf Haraldson in France. And when they went back to Scandinavia, they just said, OK, men, we started off Vikings for Odin. We're Vikings for Christ now. You will be baptised or else. And everyone said, uh, what? And it was really like the Black Knight in Monty Python. Will you get baptised? I'll lop your arm off. The arm goes, will you get baptised? I'll lop your other arm off. The other arm goes. And people may not believe this, but the acts of brutality that these two great Olafs performed is just 
totally astonishing. And one by one, all their nobles happily submitted to baptism rather than lose their arms and legs and have their eyes gouged out and have their ears cut off. They seem like a civilised bunch today, don't they? The well, Swedes and the Danes. Very charming people. I've always enjoyed travelling in Scandinavia. But they have a, a wild and somewhat unruly past, I think we must say. Well, Carol, thank you for coming in and telling us about the Vikings this afternoon. What next? Um, well, if people would like to continue, we might do something on Scandinavian religion or we might do something on converting them or we might go back to France and look at... Hugh Capet and the next dynasty. Okay, I look forward to it. Carol Cusack, our uh, medieval historian. After the news, building uh, with Peter Marcia. But right now, it's news time, two o'clock.